You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. My name is Brandon. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you get us confused, I'm the good-looking one, okay? Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, We are studying the life of David as a church, and he is a towering figure in Scripture with so much to glean from. And so far, we covered his background story, which is incredible. He was uh, the eighth son, the runt of the litter. And when God needed to install a new king over the nation of Israel, he picked out this ruddy boy named David. It was an epic underdog story where his place in life was working his father's fields and fighting off lions and bears. And it turns out that God used those years in the pasture to prepare David for one of the most incredible stories in this narrative where he picks up a sling and he takes on a giant warrior for the Philistines, Goliath. And that paved the way ever since for every kid Sunday school class ever to marvel at that story. Uh, God raised David up into this profound place of stature. He was revered by the crowds. His heart was tender and trusting of God's power and sufficiency in the face of all odds. And uh, two weeks ago, we looked at his friendship with Jonathan, the rightful heir to the throne, and how Jonathan stepped out of the way of what God was doing through his friend, David. And then we looked at what God did through David's relationship to Saul last week, the, the current king who wanted to kill David and tried every way imaginable, and how David would not take matters into his own hands no matter what, but he trusted God even with his life on the line. So all of those stories and more provide the foundation for why David shines so brightly over the pages of Scripture. And we said it's it's not often that you have a warrior king who is also a songwriter. And through the Psalms, we see his posture of trust and reliance and faithfulness to God. And uh, David is called in Scripture a man after God's own heart. All of those things inspire us to love and trust God the way we see him doing so, so many times. But Today, we are actually going to look at the flip side of that. Uh, Today, we're going to introduce the darkest moments of David's life, the tragic turn that he made, which to me makes all of these stories more believable, because if you're making up all of this stuff about a towering spiritual figure, you don't put what we're talking about today in there. You just don't. So today, we are going to be looking at some sobering stuff for all of us. We'll look at today's passage through the lens of the two main characters involved and then draw some conclusions from both of them. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. And as you're turning there, I'd love to just pray for our time this morning. So if you would join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for every soul that you've gathered in this room this morning. I know that we all walked in here with a ton of things on our minds and hearts and uh, stressors, and uh, probably our, our minds are buzzing with a hundred different things right now, so I pray that you would just quiet the noise, that you would quiet all the things running through our minds, uh, that you would give us uh, space uh, to hear from you this morning, and uh, God, I confess that I, I, am, I am tired and stressed and uh, a hundred other things, and I have nothing in and of myself to offer uh, to these souls that would be sustaining for them. And so I need your, your spirit's supernatural work uh, to speak and move and encourage and challenge and correct through uh, your supernatural word. And so I beg you to do that this morning. I beg you to speak in the only ways that you can. Um, 
and challenge in, in ways that only you can. So uh, we just pray for our time this morning. We pray that you would prepare our hearts. So I know that some of the things we're going to talk about this morning are going to be heavier. So I pray that you would prepare our hearts even now as we sit here in, in prayer, that you prepare us to, to hear what you'd have to say to us this morning. Uh, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for uh, the privilege of opening up your word. We love you. Amen. All right, Second Samuel 11, starting in verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So this is like some ominous music, music beginning to play. Uh, because kings in this time would lead their armies in battle. They would go out with them. And David's kingdom is currently at war. And David isn't fighting with them as he should be. So this is weird, because if you've been keeping track of David's life up to this point, David's claim to fame prior to becoming king was how good of a warrior he was. It started with killing Goliath. Then he proceeds to defeat several of Israel's other enemies and that would try to take their land or oppress God's people because David was a fighter. But at this point, David is chilling at the palace. He sent his army, the men who had pledged their lives to him, away without his leadership and skill and help. So he could lounge around, presumably. You might not be familiar with this, but some real quick categories for you. Uh, some Christians give a few pillars of what biblical masculinity looks like, summed up in three words. Here they are, protect, provide, pursue. We don't have time to really dig into those, but they're pretty easy to follow. Protect means that a man's uh, role is to protect those around him. So if someone is messing, messing with your kids or wife or someone else who's vulnerable, you step in. You take whatever heat is coming to them onto yourself. You say, you're going to have to come through me. But this also means that we seek to protect people uh, that God has entrusted us from spiritual harm as well, from sin and rebellious hearts, because we know sin's aim is to destroy them. So we love people around us enough to step into that when necessary. Provide is simple. You work hard to make sure people God has given you are taken care of. You do whatever you have to do. You provide shelter and covering for yourself and others. This does not mean you have to live in a mansion or that your wife cannot or should not work. Just that if people are hungry, that's your job to fix. And pursue is a posture of engagement. It means that you're rejecting apathy and disengagement and a, and a blessed sense of going about your life. You relationally pursue others instead of waiting on them. You pursue what it looks like for your family to be healthy in every way, and you work diligently toward that like it's your responsibility for them to be healthy. When you see a problem, you run towards that problem, not away from it. So first, with these th three things in mind, wouldn't life be amazing if all of us men lived up to this always? What an incredible place the world would be if men lived this out. And secondly, what we see from this one verse is that in this moment, David was rejecting all three of these things. He was not protecting his men and his people by fighting their enemies. He was not providing safety and covering for his kingdom. And he was not pursuing problems. He was hanging back to let other people handle them so he 
could be lazy. What we have here is a rejection of biblical masculinity. He is disengaged here. He's turned off to his purpose as a man and as king. And as we all know from evidence on our own lives, this does not end well. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Some of you who grew up around church may have heard a saying that goes like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay, and will hurt others along the way. It's very corny, I'll admit it, okay? Very corny. But I've remembered that for like 15 years now. And that's how you know something is sticky, is if you remember it after 15 years. And it just so happens to be true. So David sees her and he asks about her. Next line. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Because one of the things at the root of most sin is objectification. It's turning people into objects to be used for our benefit or pleasure. In fact, most crimes begin with dehumanizing people. That's how you end up with Nazi Germany or the slave trade or sex trafficking. You begin to see people as less than human. So this unnamed person in the story says to David, Hey, Bathsheba is someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. This is a person, not an object. She exists in relationship with others. She's loved and valued by others. She has a life, a story, a personality. She's a human person made in the image of God, not an object for you to use. But David dismisses the fact that he's dealing with a real person. He's in a position where he can do that as king. Verse 4. So David sent messengers And took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. All right, let me point out a few things here so we can more clearly see what actually just happened there. Uh, First off, when it says Bathsheba had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, that means her bathing is a ritual washing after her period. It's a symbolic ceremonial bathing in line with cultural custom and Leviticus chapter 15. So, in other words, she is obeying God. Secondly, the text says that David sees her from his roof. It doesn't say where Bathsheba was located, but there is no indication that she is somewhere that she shouldn't be. In fact, the person we are told is not where he should be is David. He should be off at war. So while she is fulfilling her God-given responsibilities, David is abdicating his. Third, in the next chapter, David will be confronted about all of this. And in the illustration used to confront David, Bathsheba is compared to an innocent lamb. Finally, it says David sent messengers who took her. He saw her, took her, laid with her. In Genesis 34, that same verb structure is used when Shechem rapes a woman named Dinah. 
He takes her himself, while here David uses his kingly authority to send armed soldiers to take her and bring her to the palace bedroom. In other words, Bathsheba does not have a choice here. Her consent isn't simply not given, it isn't even considered relevant. Her thoughts and feelings on the matter are irrelevant, because in a kingdom, whatever the king says or does, goes. So in light of all of this, what is actually happening here is that Bathsheba is a victim. As we'll see as we continue to read, she not only has her body taken, but she will also lose her husband, she'll lose her home, she'll lose her baby. She is a victim who suffers because of David's sin. And I do not believe the best way to describe this is an act of adultery, but that it is more than that. This is sexual assault or sexual abuse. Or to use modern language, it could be called a power rape. She does not have a choice. She is a victim. And may I remind you, cheesy but true, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay, and will hurt others along the way. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So David's looking for a way to cover this up. He's trying to find a way out of this mess he created. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. So he tries to get Uriah to go home to his wife, hoping he will sleep with her, think the baby is his, and the whole thing will be covered up. Verse 9, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come home from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Verse 11, Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So David's cover-up plan doesn't work because Uriah is too honorable. Of course he wanted to go home and be with his wife, but he slept outside the king's palace because his fellow soldiers weren't at home with their wives. They were out protecting everyone out there. So how could he enjoy what they could not most of David's life so far, he has been the one acting faithfully, even when it costs him personally. But now a man who is living out this honorable, faithful masculinity is keeping him from covering up the worst thing he's ever done. That was plan A, to cover up what he had done. It didn't work, so he moved to plan B. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. 
And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Plan B, Uriah won't go home and sleep with his wife sober. Maybe he will if he's drunk. David invites him over for a little dinner party, gets him wasted, but Uriah still does not go to his house. So King David is now at a point that a drunk Uriah is more righteous than a sober King David. It started with him just not being where God wanted him to be and not doing what God wanted him to do. And now he's spiraling out of control, getting more desperate and willing to take it further. Here's plan C, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. So the king writes this message to the army commander, seals it up where Uriah can't read it, and Uriah literally carries his death sentence back to war. And he hands his death sentence to his supervisor, Joab. And the next thing you know, verse 16, and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. So David literally has him killed but Uriah isn't the only one who dies because in this king-led cover-up, Joab had to do something unwise from a military perspective to get Uriah killed. And other people ended up getting killed too. So the king of Israel, the, the man after God's own heart, the psalmist, is now a sexual predator and a murderer. David's power gets corrupted and abused. And instead of using his power to protect and provide like he's called to, he sees this opportunity to use his power to take. To grab something that isn't his, but he wants anyway. He uses his God-given authority to harm instead of bless. He's given this immense power to point outward and protect and bring flourishing to others. And he takes that power and turns it in on himself. He uses this gift for him. And heartbreakingly, it takes the form of forcing a woman who is missing her husband to have sex with him without consent. And then he uses his power to cover it up because he can have someone murdered and get away with it. And he does. So if you've ever been severely, severely let down by someone in spiritual authority, then you have a sense of the feeling here. Where someone you loved and trusted just fails spectacularly and painfully, and it just crushes you. This is what the people of Israel were feeling at this point. God's guy just fell to an unbelievably low level. I'll jump down to the end of the chapter to finish out the story. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. 
And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, cost you more than you want to pay, and hurt others along the way. What a gripping picture of that this story provides for us. Or a king's laziness and apathy toward God becomes temptation, which becomes covetousness, which becomes sexual assault, which becomes murder of an innocent, honorable man and others who were caught in the crossfire. So for the rest of our time today, I just want to draw out some conclusions from the two main characters at play here, and we'll start with David. Because up until this point, David is a hero. He almost always does the right thing, the God-honoring thing. He is an extreme example of faith and humility and love and strength and character. I mean, he's the best of us. He's God's guy. He's the king that God anointed who is a man after God's own heart. That's what makes this situation so horrifying. This is what sin can do to us, to the best of us. And if I read this story and I think, I could never do something like that, then I have missed the whole point. I might not do exactly what David does, but I am just as capable of blowing up my life and the lives of other people around me, and so are you. I am actually more capable because David is a better person than me. It's not even close. If I rolled up to a battle standoff and Goliath is standing there, huge and scary, and it's winner-take-all representative combat, I'm not fighting him, okay? (laughs) Judge me if you want to. Somebody needs to step up here. One of y'all soldiers, let's go. Okay, some of y'all took karate. Let's go. I played football, but Goliath ain't got no ball, okay? If I found myself in a cave with the dude who's been ruining my life and trying to kill me for years, and he doesn't know I'm behind him, that dude is catching a shiv right in the back. That's what you get. That's what you get for coming after me. David is all, you know, I'm just going to trust God with this situation. I'm just going to trust him, not take matters into my own hands. He is the best of us. That's the point. He's the best of us, and this is what sin does to him. So how much danger are we in then? How much danger are you and I in if that is the case? Please don't read this and think to yourself, how could David? So despicable, I would never No, 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 no. We have the same disease as him, and he was stronger. He was stronger. That's how much danger we are in. And here's an insight that we get from this story. The big fall always starts small. It always starts small. You make a thousand decisions before you make the one decision that ruins everything. Nobody shipwrecks their life out of nowhere. 
That's not how it happens. We go prayerless for weeks or months. We conceal our struggles for weeks or months. Years ago, there was a woman in our church who was married and, and had kids, and she ultimately decided she was going to leave them to move somewhere else with someone else, and she didn't want to interact with her husband or kids again. Imagine that conversation with those kids. And when she finally talked to one of our pastors, she mentioned that she wasn't even sure that God existed, and that if he did, she didn't care what he thought about it. And our pastor said, hey, when is the last time you prayed? She said, you know, I haven't really prayed in years. I haven't prayed in years. He said, did you ever tell anyone that you were struggling? No, not really. But every day for years, she decided she would not draw near to God, not confess her struggles and doubts to him, not ask for grace and power to change. She would not repent and lay her sins before the Lord. She did not make one decision. She made a thousand decisions that all led up to one. So just to be clear, I would imagine most of us are not yet making the one decision that can ruin our lives but we are making some of the 1,000 decisions that could absolutely lead us there. A few of you right now are making that one decision that could destroy your life. So in God's uh, pleading with you, please don't do that. Please. But a lot of you are thinking, I'm never going to do something that totally ruins my life. I have more sense and self-control than that. So the 1,000 decisions don't really matter that much. I'm just never going to let it get there. Maybe you might be right about that, but the goal is not to avoid ruining your life. The goal is to walk with God. And the flip side of that, there was a time where Jesus basically says, don't be afraid of people. They can only kill you once, but be afraid of God who can kill you forever. And the worst thing that can happen to you is not your life being ruined. The worst thing that can happen to you is to be apart from God now and forever. So I don't know exactly how that needs to fit into your life, but I'll add that no one has ever ruined their life by obeying God one day at a time. That has never, ever happened. So please be on guard for the 1,000 decisions that you might be in the midst of that may lead you to the one. And while we're talking about David, it'd be uh, pastoral negligence if I didn't at least talk for a few minutes about sexual sin. Because that's the category of sin that got him and that has gotten so many others. And while sexual sin of all types and kinds has always been a primary means of rebelling against God, it is pushed onto us today in ways God's people years ago could not have imagined. So here's what I mean by that. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon is giving fatherly words of wisdom to his son. And he says to stay far away from the proverbial immoral woman. She is representative of sexual temptation. And Solomon says, don't go near her street. Don't walk on her path. Don't walk in front of her front door. Don't, things, don't make things more difficult for yourself. Fast forward to when I was growing up. If I wanted to look at porn, I had to find a physical copy, a magazine, a VHS tape. The immoral woman or man was not at her street corner, uh, but they were still out there somewhere. It had to go be found. That was just like the year 2000, but 
The year 2000 was a long time ago, wasn't it? Now we all have access to every sex act imaginable through our phones. More hours than we could ever watch in a hundred lifetimes. In other words, we've taken the proverbial immoral woman from her house and put her in our pockets. She is with us always. And this is a topic of conversation I've started having with parents and young people. I start by pointing out that in our state, someone can drive a 2,000-pound chunk of steel 70 miles an hour at the age of 15. But they cannot legally drink alcohol until they are 21. And I say there is a reason for that. Alcohol has that much potential for danger that you need to wait and mature six more years after you can drive a speeding missile. Now, thinking through that rubric, how old do you need to be to be able to have access to every sex act imaginable from the device in your pocket? How mature do you need to be to have that amount of access and not give in to that temptation? A dad told me the other day that his son is 14, and his son is a Christian on a local high school baseball team. And right now, he said one of his son's biggest goals in life is that when they go play road games for baseball, he wants to be the only young man on the bus coming back who's not looking at porn the whole time. The only one. And he says, I will most certainly be the only one if I do not. At 14. A church we learned from in Greenville says that the primary issue they face in their middle school ministry is dealing with their kids sexting. They have to over and over again go to parents of young boys and say, hey, your son asked for and received naked pictures of one of our youth group girls. And then he distributed them to everyone at school. And the parents say, no, 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 not Johnny. He would never do that. He's only 13. And they are left with the very awkward situation of how to prove that, yes, indeed, Johnny did do that. You do not have to venture out to the immoral woman or immoral man's house anymore. They have ventured to ours. It's always been hard to resist sexual temptation, always, but in our culture, the access is historically unimaginable. Adding fuel to the fire is this secular narrative that we are just animals with time and chance on our side. And when an animal wants to have sex, the animal has sex. And then we're surprised when we have sexual addiction and rape culture. And so many of us are caught up in this to one degree or another. And all of that should drive us straight to the cross, to the grace that we have received through the shed blood of Jesus and continue to receive every time we fail. To drive us to the sustaining power we need from God moment by moment to stand against temptation and hold fast to our trust that Jesus is better than sin. David's colossal failure should remind us that he was not the Savior and that he most definitely needed one, just like you and I do. But David is not the only character 
in this story. And sometimes when I've heard it taught, it's felt like he is. Sometimes when I've heard this taught, it's been like, what about Bathsheba? What about her? Left in the shadows of this terrible act to bear up under the weight and the fallout. Because Bathsheba is a victim. She suffered as a choiceless, voiceless victim at the hands of someone more powerful than her. She suffered because of another's sin in more ways than we can count. The statistics have shown that one out of every four females and one out of every six males are sexually abused or assaulted in their lifetime. This is rampant in our country. She's and he's. And what is crystal clear through our recovery ministry and being a pastor is that if anyone ever needs evidence that sin is harmful and destructive, all they need to do is find that group. Sexual abuse has profound effects on a person. There's something uniquely painful and devastating about another human forcefully taking control over your body and doing with it as they please. It's a haunting, dehumanizing sin to fall victim to. Someone who has been through this has had their sense of autonomy and control ripped away from them, possibly even their self-image due to the fact that they were treated like an object. And to make matters worse, many times they subtly or unconsciously feel partly responsible somehow. Wrongly, of course. But still they think, what's, what's wrong with me that this happened to me? Maybe if I wouldn't have done that. Maybe if I wouldn't have worn that. I shouldn't have blank. And that is just devastating to add on top of all this. So there's this swirl of thoughts and ideas always running through your mind and so much pain, and you just want that pain to go away. Howard Stern used to be a TV and radio personality, and I heard him say one time that when he interviews porn stars, he literally starts with the question, so tell me about your abuse. What happened? Because he just knows this is someone who has had control of their body taken away from them at some point. They've adopted an identity as an object to be used by others and figured they might as well make some money from it. And he said he's almost always right. So many tragic stories have their origins in sexual abuse. Drug and alcohol abuse, self-injury, depression, anxiety, paranoia, sexual addiction, so many things. And victims so badly want some amount of control. They want a positive body image, and it feels like all of that's been taken away. And and they oftentimes turn to substitute saviors, looking for some relief as they try to put back together a life. I remember the first time I was talking to a female friend uh, with that background who said that any time it is dark at night, she walks to her car with her keys splayed out like daggers between her, her fingers. And I just thought, I've never had to think about that, ever. My heart just broke for her. So it is possible, likely, that Bathsheba felt all of these things the shame and indignity of being treated like an object for a king to please himself with, the disgrace, the sense of being defiled and out of control, the fear. 
in the story, she almost comes across as a casualty of David's recklessness. She just has to bear up under the weight of all of that fallout. Losing her husband in battle by David's hand, being forced to be her husband's murderer's wife, and eventually losing the child that came from the assault. It's a dark, tragic story and a role that no one would ever want assigned to them. So we have two characters here. We have, we have David, who did something terrible that he never thought he would do. He would later be racked with guilt and shame over this, broken over all of the destruction he had caused. I have this book of liturgical prayers at home called Every Moment Holy. It scripts out prayers for all these different circumstances and has art with it. It's a really cool book. And, and it has a prayer for someone who has, uh, who has caused harm. And the artwork for it uh, actually is uh, from Adam and Eve. And it's a man holding his hand over his mouth in surprised anguish. I think we have a picture of that. Just that image of a man holding his hand over his mouth in anguished Disgust. And I think this is a good image of David in the aftermath of this. Saying, oh my gosh, what did I do? How could I have possibly done this? How can I ever be forgiven? How did I give into this sin or addiction again for the thousandth time? And then we have Bathsheba, who had something terrible done to her that she never dreamed would happen. And it caused devastating effects in her life. And she is left like all victims to try to regain what was taken from her. Feeling powerless and unclean and hurt. Choking down questions like, how do I clean myself? How do I rid myself of this disgrace? How do I numb myself? And here's what I know for a fact this morning, is that in this room, we have some Davids. To a certain degree, all of us are David, because all of us have sinned and separated ourselves from God in damaging ways. And some of us have done so in especially hurtful ways, and caused damage that we couldn't dream of. And we're left holding our mouths over what we've done and the wreckage it has caused. And in this room, we also have some Bathshebas. Some who have been gruesomely hurt by the sin, and especially the sexual sin of others. Who never dreamed that this would be a part of your story, but it is. Who can't seem to figure out why you still aren't over what happened so long ago, but you just aren't. And it still haunts you. And to make matters more complicated... Some of us can identify with both. Like, yeah, I've been hurt like crazy by other people's sin, so I'm like Bathsheba in a way, but I've also taken that pain and in turn hurt others in sometimes similar ways. So no matter which you identify with, the good news is that Jesus comes for both and even through both. Because Jesus is specifically born through David's lineage. David seemed like the perfect king until suddenly he wasn't at all. 
until his sin nature caused him to assault and murder his citizens instead of protecting them. And through this, David learned that he was not the true king he needed, that he would need another king, one who would die for his people instead of having his people die for him. And because of so many cultural differences, this may not mean much to you. It may not seem like much of a consolation prize. But do you know what the last mention of Bathsheba in Scripture is? Do you know what the last word on her life is? It's not this moment of disgrace. It actually comes through the lineage of Jesus listed out in the New Testament. And just to be clear, what this means is that out of all of David's wives... When God picked an earthly lineage for Jesus, he said, that one, Bathsheba, the one who had so much taken from her. I want to use her. In their culture and for her, that would have meant the world. It meant that God saw her pain and loss and responded in kind by lifting her head in dignity and honor. He raised her dirtied name up from the mud and put it in the royal halls of King Jesus to show that the sin done against her would not have the final say about her life and her legacy. So for my Davids in the room this morning, for those of us who still find ourselves clutching our hands over our mouths, wondering how and why we could have ever done that, how and why we could have ever hurt that person like that. Those of us who have done something that you never thought you would do, who are wracked by shame and guilt. Here's the good news of the gospel for you, that just like David, your sin does not get the final word. It is a part of your life and story, but it does not get the last word. Jesus does. Your failure does not get the last word in your life. Jesus does. Your sin, your sexual sin, does not have the final say. Because you are forgiven and cleansed and redeemed by Jesus, and he is writing a story where that is no longer at the center. If you're in Christ, your truest identity is not porn addict or adulterer or fill in the blank with whatever yours would be. That will not be front and center when the credits roll on your life. But like David, the last word on you will be reconciled, forgiven, redeemed. Man or woman after God's own heart. You'll be covered completely in the perfect substitutionary righteousness of Jesus the one and only unfailing king that all of us need. And for those of us who are Bathshebas in the room, know that just like with David's act, God is displeased with what happened to you. He is angry about it. He is not indifferent about it. He is pissed. And he will enact a more judicious judgment than you ever would. That sin will be paid for either by Jesus or the person. And know that God intends to lift your head as well. 
to bring healing and honor and restoration, to bring freedom from anxiety and fear, to convince you that you are not damaged goods, but a son or daughter of the king of the heavens. And further work and therapy may be needed in that case, but this story has good news for you. And I said earlier that sexual sin does not get the final word, and that's true, but also neither does someone else's. Someone's sin against you does not get the final word. Jesus does. So trust God to restore and honor you, to remove your shame, and resist the temptation to strike out on your own and gain back what was stolen from you, because that'll never work. Trust God to do the difficult work as you lean into him and let him lift your head. Trust him to somehow, some way, be the healer and redeemer that nothing else has been able to. God is not in the numbing business. So going to him may not bring as much initial relief as other things. But trust him because numbing doesn't heal anything. He wants to heal you, to keep you from turning into a David and all of your hurt and pain. So trust your true king who would never take advantage of you or hurt you like others have. Jesus is a better king who uses his power and love, who sees you, welcomes you, cleanses you. He doesn't use his power to harm, but he surrenders his power so he can be hurt and assaulted by others, so he can forgive and heal you and bring you to his table. So for all of us, sin need not have the final word in our lives. Amen? Not the sin that you've committed, not the sin that's been committed against you. That's what the cross is about. Forgiveness and cleansing and new life and hope and healing. That's what we are doing here. I don't know what you think this is about this morning, but this is what it's about. I need for my sin to not have the final word in my life. I need for the sin that people have done against me not to have the final word in my life. I need something other than sin to be the decisive power in my life. That's why I'm here. That's what I'm doing. In my life, I keep making a mess of things and other people keep hurting me. So I need some hope outside of what I can do and what other people can do. And you need the same. So maybe this morning you need to find someone to talk to in your life group as an immediate application of this. If you're not in a life group, come find me and I'll get you to someone who can talk and pray. Maybe you need to pray for someone else. I mean, if there's someone in, uh, that's been rattling around in your mind during the sermon, consider uh, that God prompting you to pray for them. But no matter where you are this morning, the invitation for all of us is to come to the table of a better king than David. Come feast on the broken body and shed blood of King Jesus, crucified for you, because we all need a better king than David. And grace upon grace, we have one in Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I, I thank you that as we've studied the life of David um, today, we, we have learned that David is not the hope, that uh, being always faithful and obedient to you uh, is not the hope because it is impossible, 
And just like this king, uh, who was the best of us in so many ways, uh, failed so miserably and face planted so hard into uh, unthinkably destructive sin, that that should be a sobering reality for all of us, that that is who we are, that we are not better than him, that we, we need you in the same way, even if it looks differently, that uh, our sin and rebellion against you um, makes us unable to be uh, the perfect king that we need. Father, uh, I know that we all need uh, your perfect, righteous kingship. We need, um, we need you to be who we can't be. We need you to um, measure up in all the ways that we haven't. Uh, we need your grace for all the many ways that we have failed. And so I pray that we would see this morning that um, if we have been depending and relying on our own effort and our own ability to please you, to live up to your standard, that we are doomed to fail just like David. And we need a better king. We need a salvation that comes from outside of ourselves, an obedience and a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves and only comes from Jesus. So I pray this morning that our hearts would turn and trust in that, and trust you as our king and as our righteousness. And for those of us who are hurting because of the sin done against us in the room, Father, I pray that you be a supernatural healer, hearts in ways that no one and no one, nothing else can. All of the, um, the pain and the heartache that is deeper than we can even imagine, I pray that um, your Holy Spirit would be a, a supernatural comforter and would just, just touch and heal and restore and give us the courage not to run to things that numb us, but uh, to press into you and trust you to be the better king king who will never hurt us, who will never take advantage of us, the king who died for us instead of having people die for him, and you give us the grace we need to trust you in that, and I pray for, for deep healing work in all of our hearts this morning, Father, we love you so much.